When you think of virtual reality, your next thought is probably gaming. There are a bunch of different VR systems on the market today that hardcore gamers use to enhance their virtual experience. And while it's certainly becoming a mainstay in the gaming industry, VR probably has more applications than you realize. And that's because the real power of virtual reality is its ability to convince your mind that you are in fact experiencing something that isn't real. I think the most impactful vision that I had in, in uh, an early virtual reality headset was one of standing on a block and, and looking down into a, an endless void. And those sort of things, although, you know, they, they elicit a, an emotional response. It, in my case, uh, was a combination of terror uh, and delight. That's Bob Crockett, the co-founder of Haptex. Haptex is a leading company whose VR glove technology lets you touch and feel things in the virtual world. It can accurately reproduce the feeling of things like the smoothness of a wooden table, the softness of an animal's fur, or even the heat of a flame. Bob and Haptex, in essence, have taken the first major step towards creating a virtual world that feels as real as the real world. And while the Haptex VR gloves could certainly be used for gaming, that's not the vision that Bob and his co-founder Jake Rubin have. They want to take virtual reality well beyond the realm of entertainment. We already have early experiments and early partnerships in the area of surgical training. And the extension of that is potentially being able to, to use our haptic gloves as the input device for a remote robot. But in some ways, the Haptex glove is a highly complex descendant of a VR device built for the gaming industry. The Power Glove. The Power Glove, released more than 30 years ago, was both a groundbreaking piece of VR technology and one of the video game industry's big flops. I have absolute admiration for the product, even though it's suffered its own series of, of grief, as has every innovation uh, that's a little bit ahead of its time. The, the difference between an earlier innovation like the Power Glove uh, and where we are today is not the difference between good and bad innovation or not getting it and getting it. Technology evolves uh, and we could not have built our glove more than 10 years ago. It just would not have been possible. It was the right idea, the right place. Sometimes it's the right time that's elusive. But when that idea is truly right, time and sometimes technology has a funny way of catching up to it. I'm Julia Furlan, and this is Ahead of Its Time, an original podcast from SETA, a show about the tech underdogs no one realized would shape the future. SetApp's versatile app subscription service empowers you to step into a new era of productivity. It's going to be terrible quality. Uh, all right, let me do this. And I'm going to put my big speakers on. I thought you would just, like, get the soundtrack and edit it up yourself. Do you really want this shitty quality? Okay, hold on. Let me stop this. Let me... Okay, so this is a piece called T-Rose. Uh, I'm not sure why I called it that, but that's what it says. Um, and it's mostly a drone piece. It's done with uh, uh, my 
ARP synthesizer. Hi, I'm Tom Zimmerman. I'm an inventor. I invented the original data glove, which morphed into the commercial product, the Power Glove. We actually used this soundtrack on our first VPL demo to show people what uh, you could do with a data glove. Uh, so it has some relevance to VR. In the late 1980s, Tom was at a tech startup called Visual Programming Language Research, or VPL for short. VPL was the world's first virtual reality company and developed several pieces of tech, including the first VR headsets. But Tom's data glove was their marquee product. And like Tom himself, it was rooted in music. So I was surrounded by music. My dad loved opera, and I hated it. And every weekend, he'd be painting the house or something, and I'd hear opera. Yeah, so as I look back, I had all these pieces of the puzzle of this virtual world, and one of them was watching my dad conduct Beethoven's Ninth. He was so excited, he went out and he got from Radio Shack some big speakers, and he said, Tom, listen to that bass, and he's uh, standing up and conducting it and like thunder shaking his hands. And I'm just, you know, a kid watching this, and here's my dad, the accountant, grooving on Beethoven's Ninth. And while his dad was jamming to classical, Tom was busy grooving on the works of John, Paul, George, and Ringo. So I used to listen on my tube amplifier, monophonic, and there's a big 12-inch speaker uh, I have right to my face. So the Beatles are inside that. And I'm standing up next to it, and I'm singing along and playing with them. And so I'm in my imagination, the fifth beetle, because they're right in front of me. Uh, if I close my eyes, all I can hear is them, and I can feel my guitar in my hands, and I'm strumming along with that. And I thought, wouldn't it be cool if, and I find this an inventor, that's a great phrase, wouldn't it be cool if, when you made believe you were playing air guitar, you could really hear it coming out of the speakers? Like those timeless Beatles songs, that question lingered in Tom's mind through school, during his guitar lessons, and all the way to his time at college, where he discussed the idea with a roommate. He had this idea that if you touched the different finger combinations, you could play chords. If I really wanted to hear air guitar, I'd have to measure finger bending. So I needed some sensor that can tell when your, your fingers are bending. So I went down to Canal Street, which is where all these surplus electronics is in New York, uh, picked up some LEDs, some phototransistors, some rubber shiny tubing. And so I glued it to a, a gardening glove, and that was the birth of the, um, the data glove. Tom ran the tubing along the fingers of the gardening glove. At one end of the tube was an LED light. At the other end was a light sensor. When he bent his fingers, the tube bent, choking off a bit of the light to the sensor changing the signal. Using his Atari 400 computer, those changes in light could be translated as a change in pitch to a musical note. So by bending his fingers, he could play chords. This got Tom thinking. If he could use his hands, maybe he could use other parts of his body to make music too. And actually in developing this, I mean, I was in my parents' house in my bedroom and I had done the glove on the hand and I thought, well, let's try my knees. So I took my pants down and put an ace bandage on my knee and 
um, put the flex sensor on it, and I'm programming on my Atari 400. And I paused for a moment. I thought, this is such a weird scene. After college, Tom decided to move to California to take a job at the gaming company Atari. As it turned out, there were major layoffs after the gaming crash of 1983, so Tom's time at Atari didn't last long. But his creativity fit perfectly with the bold, eccentric, what-if attitude of California. Tom found a community of like-minded creators. One day, while attending an electronic music concert at Stanford University, he met someone who would change his life forever. That someone was Jaron Lanier, the man who coined the term virtual reality and who's widely considered the father of the field. And I told him about this uh, glove I had, and he was developing a visual programming language. And it was very clear in a couple minutes, we had a lot in common. And so that was just fortuitous. I talk about uh, successful inventions having three personas, the dreamer, the engineer, and the entrepreneur. And I'm pretty much in the dreamer engineer camps, and he really touches on all three. So meeting him really propelled this prototype into a product. Jaron Lanier's visual programming language was the software Tom needed to run his glove. And Tom's glove was the hardware Jaron needed to unlock the potential of his software. So Tom joined Jaron's startup, VPL Research, and they got to work. They started creating all kinds of applications for the data glove and even built a full-body data suit outfitted with sensors that could measure arm and leg movement. We looked at a range of applications, uh, medical, entertainment, computer-aided design, robotics, telerobotics, telepresence. And we tried pursuing all these customers. But when we started talking to people, they said, forget about programming languages. No one wants to program. Uh, we want video games. 1989 was a whirlwind year for Tom and Jaron. Their technology was the talk of January's hugely influential consumer electronics show. And their glove was featured on the cover of Scientific American. Soon, there was a deal with the toy company Mattel. They wanted to market the data glove as a game controller for Nintendo. They called it the Power Glove. Late that year, just two weeks before Christmas, the Power Glove was front and center in The Wizard, a Fred Savage film about an underdog kid in a major video game competition. With that marketing sizzle from Nintendo and Mattel behind it, the Power Glove sold well. It was a busy year for Tom. He hadn't really had much time to process everything he'd accomplished in the last 12 months. But one day, it all hit him. After the Power Glove came out, I was in New York, walking down the street, and I passed a Toys R Us, and I looked in the window. And there was my Power Glove. And I thought, this is amazing. I dreamed of something. And here it is in reality. And I was just, I had this like feeling of the universe saying, if you really dream something and are passionate about it and dedicate your heart, mind, and body to it, it'll be realized. Realized, sure. But its success wouldn't be sustainable. 
To meet a consumer-friendly price point, they had to compromise on functionality. And marketing could only distract from the Power Glove's performance issues for so long. The Data Glove, which was $8,000, we sold a lot to universities um, because they were doing early work in VR. And then Mattel came out with the $80 glove. And a question would always be, why is one $80 and one $8,000? Well, the performance obviously was a lot better with the data glove. The rush to market left no time to develop custom games for the Power Glove. Instead, Nintendo adapted it to existing video games. But the glove was meant for use in virtual reality, not as a games controller. And that was a problem. There were lags with some of the older games that the glove was retrofitted to work with. There were games that failed to recognize hand movement. The sizzle around the power glove faded, and in October 1990, it was discontinued. While it was a failure in its time, Tom sensed that his invention had helped pave the way for virtual reality to come. We learned a hard lesson that um, people are still trying to learn. With VR, you're putting hand through walls, you're picking up cups that aren't there. And um, so I think tactile feedback or haptic feedback will be really essential to make the experience more rich, especially interacting with physical things. That's exactly the problem Haptex is solving with their Haptic Feedback VR glove. Over the last 30 years, every facet of VR technology has evolved and improved. But in a rather ironic twist of fate, the very thing that proved to be the Power Glove's kryptonite is now the backbone of the Haptex glove's versatility. Haptex takes advantage of today's advanced video game software, software that the Power Glove desperately needed to improve its functionality. High-end video games have very, very sophisticated physics engines running underneath them. Uh, they provide everything you need to, to drive our gloves. Here's Bob Crockett again. Our gloves could now be used essentially in any video game environment. You don't have to redo video game content to make it haptic ready. It just, it just works. And so it makes sense that the Haptex demo programs inspire the same sense of play that many people feel when they play video games. Okay. How's that feel? Man, look at that. I feel like the power glove. So when I first drop you into the virtual environment here, you're going to... It sounds like this VR enthusiast who Haptex brought in to test drive their gloves might have been a fan of Tom Zimmerman's power glove when he was a kid but he's about to discover just how far the technology has come. He slips on a VR headset and a pair of black gloves fitted with flexible tubes along the back of his hands. These tubes lead to sensors at the end of his fingertips. All right, so now you can reach out and interact with any of those objects. Put up some game signs. Oh! Oh my God! Oh! Oh, snap! If you, you look over to your left, you got a little fox friend. And it's got a fox that, that jumps out and, and curls up on your hand. And so when you're when you're playing with scale or when you're uh, when you know when you're looming large over a farm or have a tiny animal uh, in your hand, that's when that's when you have the most um, most visceral responses, the most human responses that that you're you're interacting with something that is amazing and magical. That is too weird. It is wiggling in my hand. Okay. <laughs> wow. Wow. That's the Dude, you got to try this. Yeah. Yes. Oh, you got to try this. It was 
one of those rare and very special moments when you see how technology intersects with with human emotion, uh, because it was at that point that we could see, you know, just exactly how impactful this new technology was. Fueling that emotion is this glove technology that replicates every kind of physical sensation. The way fingers stop against an object, its feel and texture, its temperature, and the tiniest movements. The field of haptics has been around for many years, but haptics in virtual reality is starting to take on a much more important role. Our sense of touch and the information or haptic data we get from it helps us make sense of our world. We need more than just the visuals and the basic physical feedback we get from traditional VR systems. And that is what Haptex is doing. They are at the forefront of VR haptics. But the forefront of virtual reality isn't necessarily where Bob Crockett imagined himself. In fact, he was late to the field. I had never tried on a virtual reality headset and the first time I, I tried one was uh, back in the days before Oculus was owned by Facebook. Uh, and I put that headset on, like many others uh, before me, and, and had a life-changing experience. It really, when you see a good virtual reality system for the first time, even though it might be imperfect, you know that you're seeing the future. Then one day, nearly a decade ago, he got an unexpected email from a young man named Jake Rubin. And so he, he emailed me. We had some phone conversations, and, and he was coming to me as a 20-year-old college dropout with a vision for an apparatus that you strap yourself into, full-body, immersive, haptic system. And all of a sudden, you can't tell the difference between the real world and the virtual world. And as you can imagine, that's a, a challenging conversation for a, for a 20-year-old who hasn't finished college to have with a college professor to convince them, first off, that you're not entirely crazy. Jake's intelligence and drive soon won him over. After that, the challenge for Bob was to think and work at Jake's pace. Working with Jake was like drinking from a fire hose. He would come prepared with 27 articles that I was uh, to have pre-read before any one of these mental tennis matches. And of course, I was totally unprepared for, for this. But, uh, but what it turned out to be was very enjoyable conversations that start in our offices and then would go over lunch and then would continue into dinner and then transition into the bar at night. And, uh, and so I, I started working with Jake uh, and got deeper and deeper into the conversation about what this device would look like. Bob and Jake founded Haptex in 2012 and got to work creating virtual experiences, hoping to win over investors. The logical starting point was to create virtual tactile experiences for the hand. But the first prototype wasn't a glove. That was too complicated. First, they had to build an artificial skin that would accurately simulate our sense of touch. And this is what makes their technology a game changer for VR. You actually have to be able to press far into the skin in order to trick your mind into thinking that you're truly interacting with something that's out there. And so the way that we do that is with microfluidics, and that's just a fancy way of, of saying that, that we're using air that are routed to little balloons that are at the ends of your fingers uh, and across your palm. And we can inflate these balloons uh, in the right sequence, in the right pattern, to the right pressure uh, to replicate any sort of interaction that, that you, you would be having with a, with a real object. Their first prototype was a giant box, which became a key attraction at investor meetings. We would lug this box around on its own cart. And I'm telling you, this thing was about 
120 pounds. It was it was not a small device. Uh, and we would inevitably set it up in the conference room of, of a, a venture capitalist firm or, or an investor's uh, office. It would draw a crowd. Wearing a VR headset, the user placed their hand inside the box and pressed it against this artificial skin. And then the virtual experience began. You'd feel the thermal sensation. Uh, we had hot and cold in different locations across the hand. And so if you picked up an ice cube, you'd put it in your hand and you'd feel the cold. We had a dragon fly in and, and breathe on you and you could feel the, the, the fire coming out of the dragon's mouth. You had a bunch of fruit laid out on the desk nearby and, and you would grab a piece of fruit and put it into your open palm. That was the first time that people could really understand what we were talking about and, and really see the future. And it was so mind-blowing. We had people who, would, when the demo was over, they'd take off the headset and they would open the box to see if they looked for the banana because they were convinced that, that we were trying to, to pull something over on them, that that feeling was, was actually a real object. Uh, but that's how new it was. At the heart of it, it's this type of experience, this sense of wonder and disbelief that's at the root of what Bob and Jake are doing. They're creating technology that convinces your mind that you are actually feeling an object that isn't there. And their technology has only gotten better over the last few years. In 2021, Haptex released their first commercial VR glove called the DK2. They struck deals with various companies, including Nissan, to help them develop vehicle prototypes. And with the English medical firm Fundamental Surgery for use on its VR medical training platforms. There are examples of customers using it for simulation and training. So you can imagine that that if you can train people in a virtual environment, that can be much safer and much less expensive and much faster than if you have to send firefighters out to an actual burning building, for example, or pilots in an actual cockpit. The next day it can be a, an electrician workstation. The next day it can be something for the space station. It really, it doesn't matter. You're just changing out the, the virtual environment. Uh, and that's very different from the way things are right now. Perhaps the most consequential application is one that Tom Zimmerman and Jaron Lanier first imagined for their data glove. The Haptex DK2 gloves can be used to remotely control a pair of robotic hands. And that could have massive implications for telemedicine and healthcare. The idea is that the robot might be in London and it's got a pair of robot hands that have sensors on it. And when that robot touches something, you feel it on the user side. And you can imagine that having an application in remote surgery in the future where a, a surgeon can be uh, on you know, one side of the continent and a patient can be on the other side of the continent and perform a, a remote surgery. Those are the sort of things that absolutely will happen. And it hasn't truly been possible until you've been able to, to have that natural touch interaction. So, so we're very excited to be kind of the, the key piece of the puzzle for these much larger systems. And where is Haptex technology headed? For right now, things are aligned to, to let us do the job that we set out to do, which is to produce a fully immersive, haptic, full-body system. The gloves will also be one component in a more comprehensive system that's more like Jake described back in 2012, where you strap into a, a, an apparatus, put on a VR headset, and distinction between virtual and real uh, diminishes to the point of zero. The technology has changed, but the vision remains the same since Tom Zimmerman developed his power glove. I think haptics is going to be a very exciting experience 
We have a great power as humans to suspend disbelief. All I have to say is once upon a time, boom, and you're there. We're inherently storytellers. And so we have such great facility for imagining things, just as long as the technology stays out of the way. And VR uh, has great potential. And Bob Crockett couldn't agree more. Yeah, I think that's, for me, one of the, the things that's so exciting about creating this. It's not just a business tool. It's not just something that, that will improve gaming. It actually is a, a new way of interacting with, with worlds that haven't existed before. The future of VR really is catching up to the promises of VR, first and foremost. It's literally world-changing because now you get to, to create your reality. I'm Julia Furlan, and this is Ahead of Its Time, an original podcast from Setup. Working on your next big thing? SetApp's productivity toolkit will help you stay focused and get stuff done. Head over to setapp.com to see if SetApp can help you bring your ideas to life.